0: listeners. This is Labor Know Your Rights Podcast. I'm your host, Dave. This episode is brought to you by the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first. Contact information can be found in the show notes, including our toll-free number, which is 1-855-625-8610. Please check out Life on Record, a gift of Record messages for any special occasion to a loved one. See our show notes for details. A week later, Lewis lowered the boom, lambasting Roosevelt's eagerness for war in a live radio address over all three networks that was heard by as many as 30 million Americans. Labor respecting John L. Lewis mightily nonetheless did not choose to honor his grudge against the occupant of the White House. The personal spite or the hatred of one man will not switch labor's votes from Mr. Roosevelt, observed the UAW's Walter Ruther. American labor will take Roosevelt, labor did as Reuther, not Lewis, predicted, and voted overwhelmingly for the president, helping to sweep him to an historic third term. Lewis, in turn, honored the ultimatum he had issued and forfeited his leadership of the CIO. Two months after the Flint sit-down conflict had been resolved, in April 1937, a small airplane appeared in the sky above the Ford Motor Company's massive River Rouge plant in Detroit, the largest industrial complex in the world, covering 1,200 acres and employing more than 80,000 workers. Inside the cockpit Pit, Victor and Walter Ruther of the UAW held a microphone and shouted a message of UAW solidarity down to the employees below who were in the midst of a shift change, their words amplified by loudspeakers the brothers had strapped to the underside of the airplane's wings. The flight, well remembered as one of the more dramatic efforts at union organizing in American labor history, was technically a flop as the plane could not fly low or slow enough for its occupants' voices to be heard on the ground. Henry Ford and the Ford Company had been a pioneer of automobile mass production as well as leaders in the field of welfare capitalism. For years Ford's operations in Detroit offered steady wages and benefits and retained a stable workforce. It also made inroads into the hiring of black workers. But the flip side of his benevolence was his adamant refusal to surrender control of any aspect of his vast operations to labor unions. Ford had hired former boxer Harry Bennett to oversee euphemistically named Ford Service Department, a collection of toughs and ex-hoodlums loyal to Bennett, who was devoted to Ford. As Henry's health began to decline. In the late 1930s, with a series of mild strokes, he ceded ever greater authority to Bennett, appointing him manager of the employment office at the Rouge. Henry was weary of the UAW's successful sit-down strike against GM and its other advances in the automobile business, including the attainment of union recognition at Chrysler, Studebaker, Nash, and Packard with the depression having taken a toll on ford motor company fortunes he knew his business was vulnerable to labor unrest still floor bosses only drove workers all the harder as conditions toughened speed-ups increased pace of the assembly lines and new rules restricted everything from lunch hours to bathroom breaks Ford likely felt ample justification for insisting that he knew what was best for his workers, for he had often been lauded as a visionary in the field of industrial relations. In 1914, he had introduced the Ford $5 day, $5 for a day's work, an innovation that overnight doubled the salary of most Ford employees and made them the highest-paid auto workers in the nation. Like many self-made millionaires, Ford's weak spot was that he had come to assume the infallibility of his own judgment. He believed wholeheartedly in Henry Ford, the folk hero, the innovative industrialist with world-shaping ideas. As someone who had contributed so enormously to defining what work was in the 20th century, It was only natural for him to believe he also knew what workers needed, and Henry Bennett's service department had done a superb job of seeing to it that what they didn't need was a union. In response, the UAW launched an informational campaign designed to entice Ford workers, distributing a leaflet outside the Rouge, titled Unionism, Not Fordism but urge now is the time to organize. The Wagner bill is behind you. Now get behind yourselves. On May 26, 1937, in the afternoon, a group of UAW representatives led several labor sympathizers, clergymen, and reporters across an overpass approaching the Rouge Busy Gate Number 4. The Ford Company had built the overpass Employees used it to reach the streetcar stop across Miller Road, but it had been leased to the Streetcar Commission for the use of the general public and was not considered private property. Reuther, to be sure, had obtained a city permit to distribute the UAW flyers, and women volunteers of a AUW auxiliary group had been designated to actually Hand the flyers to departing employees during a Ford shift change in order to minimize the possibility of confrontation. Suddenly, a group of Bennett's men appeared to challenge the UAW's group's presence on Ford property. Words barely exchanged before several thugs jumped the AUW leaders and proceeded to attack them in full view. Of news photographers, twenty people were injured from the, the aUW, including four women who complained the Ford Tufts had shoved and kicked them. The enforcers also turned on members of the press, snatching cameras and yanking out film. but one photographer managed to escape, and his pictures were widely circulated. Ford Company's effort to blame the UAW and the press for an uh, attack on a peaceable body of Ford workmen proved ineffectual. Henry Ford angrily withdrew the firm's advertising from the nation's leading magazines Time, Life and Fortune for carrying news of the incident. At the same time, spying and belly bumping operations like Ford's service department were receiving long overdue scrutiny from Congress. Wisconsin Senator Robert M. Lafayette, Jr. and Senator Albert D. Thomas of Utah, prompted by the NLRB's difficulties in enforcing the Wagner Act, had, in 1936, launched an inquiry into corporate anti-labor abuses, such as espionage, provocations, and terrorism, used to disrupt union organizing prior to the Wagner Act, anti-labor practices had presented ethical rather than legal problems. After 1935, however, these practices were no longer merely unethical but also illegal. Released in December 1937, the committee's report cited labor spying to be common, almost universal practice in America industry and listed no fewer than 2,500 U.S. corporations engaged in anti-union espionage and trickery. Nearly 4,000 spies and detectives, some from the Pinkerton Detective Agency, had been involved at an estimated aggregate cost to business and hence consumers of almost $10 million in the years 1933 to 1936. The extent of spying alone was considerable with as many as 93 unions having been infiltrated. GM was the Pinkerton's largest manufacturing client and the most flagrant offender, spending $800,000 on espionage during the four-year period and said to possess the most super system of spies yet devised in any American corporation. GM was so involved in workplace espionage that when they grew concerned, Over some of their spies, possibly of stealing trade secrets, they hired more spies, eventually hiring a third tier to spy on the previous two tiers. The big autotent was one of many corporate heavyweights exposed in the report. Bethlehem Steel and Pennsylvania Railroad, as well as the far less likely Warner Brothers Studios, Walgreens Drug Stores, and the Brooklyn Jewish Hospital were also found to have employed labor spies. The committee concluded that the real motive in all cases was resistance by employers to the organization of their employees for collective bargaining, and the spies often posed as labor organizers in order to entrap those workers who responded to the spy's bogus anti-employer rhetoric. One spy had managed to become a union's national vice president. Pinkerton and baldwin felt announced their intention of quitting the labor espionage business when this report was publicized. Henry Ford continued to resist. By 1940, Ford's once golden reputation for industrial relations had deteriorated so badly that there was outrage from the press and public when the federal government handed the firm a lucrative defense contract to produce airplane engines. Even Eleanor Roosevelt, herself a unionized member of the Newspapers Guild, because she wrote a syndicated column, joined the chorus of disapproving voices, among which the nation cited Ford Motors as the country's foremost violator of the Wagner Act. In the spring of 1941, the UAW seen Ford's vulnerability and launched a new organizing campaign. On April 1st, prompted by the firing of 11 night shift workers linked to the UAW, a strike was called. The workers split the strike, and a fight started. Most of the loyal Ford workers were African-American employees, who accounted for 30% of the Ruge's workers. Shunned historically by major labor unions, they could not help but to appreciate businessmen such as Ford who made a point to hire them. That was largely black workers who resisted the u a w strike efforts, occupying a part of the Rouge premises, engaging in hand-to-hand combat with u a w picketers, and at one point hurling heavy metal buckets from the roof onto a throng of marchers below in w a c p executive secretary, Walter White, at the time one of the most respected African-American leaders in America and a friend of both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt's helped break up the standoff. With the President's blessing, White came to the Rouge plant and spoke with the black workers from a sound car, convincing them to stop serving as strike breakers and decide with the UAW. The willingness of the black employees to abide by White's counsel and cross over to the UAW, rejecting their longtime allegiance to Ford, helped turn the tide in the strike ten or even five years earlier henry ford's resistance to such a concentrated union campaign might have proven insurmountable but his health had faded again recently and for perhaps the first time in their relationship his son etzel who accepted unions as an element of modern industrial relations was able to withstand the influence of both his father and Harry Bennett. Edsel and Michigan Governor Murray D. Van Wagoner arranged to settle the dispute by allowing the NLRB to conduct an election among the 80,000 Ford workers in the River Rouge and nearby Lincoln plants to determine the unionization issue. The ballot offered workers the choice of representation by the UAW/CIO, the AFL, are no union at all. The May 21st vote went overwhelmingly to the UAW/CIO, with fewer than one percent favoring no union. One UAW official characterized the vote as the end of an era in American industry. Portism has been repudiated by the men who knew it best, by the Ford workers. He vowed that the UAW was eager to erase all bitterness and move immediately to negotiations of a fair contract. Governor Murray D. Bone Wagner and the NLRB conceded publicly that the UAW-CIO had carried the day. The law provides that we must live with them and we never violate the law. Henry Ford, stubborn to the end, was not yet willing to hoist the white flag. He refused to sign the UAW contracts drawn up after the election. He threatened to shut down the company before he would share his long-held authority with an outside union. Warned by aides that his non-cooperation would likely bring government intervention, Ford famously replied, Well, if the government steps in, It will be in the motor car business, and it won't be me. Ford was seen, even by company loyalists, as a tired, unwell old man. But his power was still legend, and his obstinacy resolute. His sudden change of heart on the matter caught even close colleagues by surprise. The very day after his line-in-the-sand remark about the government taking over the motor car business, he reversed himself agreeing to UAW's provisions and guaranteeing full cooperation with the automakers' union on wages, work conditions, and the collection of union dues by withholding money from workers' paychecks. Veteran Ford aide Charles A. Sorensen suggests a more homespun resolution. When he asked Ford what had made him change his mind, the company's founder reported that his wife, Clara, perhaps the one person in the world who could get away with scolding the aged inminder had lectured him in no uncertain terms about the riots and bloodshed his further resistance would surely create she did not want to be around here With your family and friends, please rate our podcast on iTunes. It helps others find us. If you want to contact us to suggest a topic, have a question, or just want to say hi, our contact information is in the show notes, along with our sponsor, the National League of Justice and Security Professionals, where the members come first.